the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. He is the author of Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel. The book is published by New Growth. He's married to Natalia. Actually, I think it's just Natalie, but uh, they have three children. Um, he uh, is uh, has worked with Young Life for a number of years. He's a pastor in Greensboro, North Carolina, and we're going to talk with him about uh, coming alongside and loving teenagers with the gospel. Looking forward to that conversation. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Judy Bush and Joni Militich. They are with Prep for Kids. That's the release time program that allows uh, kids in public schools uh, to, with their parents' uh, permission, to take time out from the uh, classroom for an hour of uh, Bible training, and it's uh, it's proven to be quite productive, not only from a spiritual standpoint, but academically and uh, in terms of behavioral challenges uh, for those who participate. We're going to talk with Judy and Joni about that, as well as their fundraising banquet that's coming up. And I really want to encourage you, if you'd like to learn more about this ministry, it's a great opportunity uh, to find out how you might um, support them in their work, whether that's volunteering, um, starting a program in a school nearby, We'll talk with them about all of those options when they join us in the five o'clock hour. But first, some of the developing news stories. New Supreme Court Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh took to his seat on the high court today for the first time after the president apologized to him and his family during a swearing in ceremony on behalf of the nation for a Democratic led smear campaign. And by the way, the president was uh, soundly criticized for this uh, uh, show. However, I think it's important to point out that uh, Obama did the same thing. It's very typical for presidents to take a victory lap. And this was just another version of what presidents have done. Well, amid 2020 rumors, Bill and Hillary Clinton have announced plans to go on an international speaking tour after the midterm elections. Tickets promise to be pricey. I'm hearing somewhere around $800 a pop. Alabama has joined Florida in declaring a state of emergency as Hurricane Michael threatens to hit the United States. And the opioid crisis in the United States has emerged as a major election issue with the midterms a month away. Google has decided to shut down the Google Plus social media site. As a report says, the tech giant exposed the private data of hundreds of thousands of Google Plus users, but chose to keep it a secret. And controversial hip-hop artist and Trump supporter Kanye West is reportedly expected to meet the president at the White House on Thursday. Well, as I mentioned, Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, he took to the bench today, a cloud of controversy still surrounding him. New Supreme Court uh, Justice has vowed to be a nonpartisan team player on a team of nine as he takes his seat on the high court. Uh, but Democrats will not likely uh, let him settle into the new job peacefully. Kavanaugh has become uh, election rallying cry among Democrats in the final weeks before the November election. And Democrats have vowed to continue to investigate Kavanaugh and even threaten to impeach him. Meanwhile, President Trump and Republicans say the FBI's investigation of uncooperated sexual misconduct allegations and subsequent Supreme Court confirmation have cleared Kavanaugh of any alleged wrongdoing and that he should be allowed to carry out his duties on the bench. 
We'll see which uh, view prevails. Speaking at a swearing ceremony at the East Room in the White House uh, yesterday, the president apologized to the Kavanaugh family on behalf of the nation for what he called a desperate Democrat-led campaign of lies and deception intent on derailing the confirmation. Now it remains to be seen how long Associate Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh will be haunted by the war over his confirmation. And uh, Bill and Hillary are taking it to the streets shortly after the midterm elections with the uh, tickets running as high as seven forty five. That's hundred dollars and speculation swirling that the former secretary of state could announce her yet another presidential bid. The tour, which kicks off in Las Vegas, is set to run from November in 2018 to May of next year. It's going to include several stops in the U.S. and Canada. We'll cover the high profile couple's thoughts on one of the United States most controversial and unpredictable presidential elections. Who knew that would be a topic, according to the event's organizers. And a state of emergency was issued in Alabama today, um, actually on Monday, as dangerous Hurricane Michael continues to barrel toward the U.S. It's now our Category 3, with the potential uh, to hit the Florida panhandle tomorrow. The storm, which was upgraded to uh, a hurricane status uh, earlier on Monday, was bringing hurricane-force winds and heavy rainfall to western Cuba as storm surges and hurricane warnings have uh, been issued for the northeastern area of the Gulf Coast. The Gulf Coast is forecast to see tropical storm conditions uh, tonight and early tomorrow, ahead of the hurricane activity expected for Wednesday. Alabama Governor Kay Ivey on Monday declared a state of emergency for the entire state as the storm pushes its way toward the southern U.S. Meanwhile, Florida residents are bracing for Michael's impact. Residents were Filling sandbags, boarding up their homes as Hurricane Michael gained strength over warm waters and barrels toward Florida's northeast Gulf Coast. The hurricane was located about 425 miles south of um, uh, the area, 455 miles south of Panama City, Florida, according to the National Hurricane Center at about 2 a.m. Eastern time. uh, And the advisory was sent out at that time. From the bustling streets of Philadelphia to the rural farmlands of uh, Mercer County, nearly every community in Pennsylvania has been rocked by the opioid crisis. And the problem keeps worsening. In 2016, more than 4,600 Pennsylvanians died as a result of drug abuse. It's affected the lives of thousands more. For Jose Benitez, the executive director of the Needle Exchange Clinic in Philadelphia, additional funding and attention to the opioid crisis is a tipping point in the Pennsylvania midterm election. He hopes to see lawmakers who are educated on addiction and can provide innovative solutions. The opioid problem is emerging as a major issue during the midterm elections, particularly in areas hard hit by the growing crisis. A recent analysis by the Wall Street Journal shows that ads mentioning the opioid crisis have aired more than 50,000 times in congressional and gubernatorial races across 25 states. Just four years ago, at around this time, it had only been uh, mentioned 70 times, according to the journal. And Google shuttered its consumer Google Plus site after the company discovered a software glitch that gave outsiders potential access to private profile data. According to Google, a software glitch in the social media's uh, could allow outsiders to uh, and developers to access this private information from up to 500,000 accounts from 2015 right through March of this year. The company can't confirm which user's data was impacted. Additionally, the company didn't disclose to its customers the data breach for fear of damaging its reputation. They were more concerned about their reputation than your online safety, as well as facing a potential for a regulatory inquiry, according to the Wall Street Journal. And Conway West, Kanye West, one of the president's most famous supporters, is expected to meet with the president at the White House on Thursday, the New York Times reported. The Times cited two unnamed sources who said West will meet the president's 
uh, son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner and have lunch with the president. West is reportedly expected to talk about the criminal justice system and job opportunities for former convicts. The 41-year-old rapper who announced on Twitter last week he's changing his name to Yee, okay, delivered an impromptu speech supporting the president at the end of his Saturday Night Live performance last week in which he wore the um, hat declaring Make America Great Again. And on this day in 1985, the hijackers of the Achille Loro cruise liner surrendered uh, two days after seizing the vessel in the Mediterranean. Hijackers, you might recall, killed passenger Leon Klinghoffer during that standoff. And on this day in 1930, Laura Ingalls became the first woman to fly across the uh, United States as she completes a nonstop journey from Roosevelt Field, New York to Glendale, California. Laura Ingalls. Yeah, you heard it right. And on this day in 1888, the public is first admitted to the Washington Monument. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Nikki Haley abruptly announced her resignation today as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, catching staff and lawmakers by surprise, although it was revealed that she'd mentioned it to the president some six years ago, six years, six months ago. Uh, She's leaving Washington, uh, guessing about the next move for one of the administration's most prominent figures has been pretty much the occupation of the media throughout the day. Speaking in the Oval Office alongside the president who accepted the resignation, Haley said she would serve through the end of 2018. She presumed. Uh, presumably uh, sought to mute speculation she might run against her old boss, stressing that she uh, still supports Trump and will not campaign for the White House in 2020, at least not against him. She did say in a rather surprising statement that she will campaign for him. Haley called her time at the U.N. a blessing, but offered no reason for leaving other than a belief that the government officials must know when it's time to step aside. Well, the president told reporters that Haley did an incredible job and is a fantastic person. He said she had told him six months ago that she wanted to take a break, maybe at the end of the year. Hopefully you'll be coming back at some point, maybe in another capacity. He told her, you can have your pick. Well, Haley called her time at Turtle Bay the honor of a lifetime and said there was nothing set on where um, uh, where I am going to go. She also praised the work of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, particularly Kushner's role in renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. She called Kushner a hidden genius. Now the U.S. is respected. Countries may not uh, like what we do, but they respect what we do, she said, citing a number of achievements of the Bush, of the Trump administration, rather. The U.S. is strong again. It's strong in a way that should make all Americans very proud, she told reporters. Well, on, um, on uh, why it's time to leave. Haley said that she's a believer in term limits and believes it's good to rotate new government officials in from time to time in her resignation letter. She also expressed that sentiment and again ruled out a 2020 run. I expect uh, to continue to speak out from time to time on important public policy matters, but I will surely not be a candidate for any office in 2020, she wrote. As a private citizen, I look forward to supporting your reelection as president and supporting the policies that will continue to move our great country toward even greater Heights. Nikki Haley uh, will leave office at the first of the year. The president, meanwhile, said today that he'll name a successor to outgoing United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley in the first few weeks, or rather the next few weeks, in widespread speculation over who can fill their shoes. It's not as if we have enough to think about that's actually, we actually know uh, speculation has uh, become a pastime as well. She surprised uh, staff and lawmakers, although um, it's believed not the president, in making her announcement. The president, <clears throat> excuse me, said he will most likely choose her successor in the next two to three weeks, maybe sooner. One name 
already being floated as a possible replacement uh, for Haley is U.S. Ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell. Grinnell spent eight years serving as a U.S. spokesman and political appointee to the United Nations under George W. Bush administration, making him the longest serving U.S. U.N. appointee in history. From that role, he is known to be close to the Trump's National Security Advisor John Bolton and former U.N. Ambassador. Along with Grinnell, other names being floated to, to replace Haley include U.S. Ambassador to Russia, John Huntsman, actor acting um, under Secretary for Public Diplomat, uh, rather Diplomacy and Public Affairs, Heather Newart, former Deputy National Security Advisor, Dina Powell, and even first daughter, Ivanka Trump, although the president ruled that out, citing um, nepotism. Uh, Haley apparently told the president six months ago she was planning to leave, so he's probably given it some thought. The president said he wanted to make the announcement of Haley's departure in person and ward off any speculation that there was bad blood between the president and his ambassador. That uh, announcement has now been made. Well, with the midterm elections uh, a month away, liberal billionaires are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars behind the Democratic Party in the upcoming midterm election in November, raising questions whether the so-called blue wave is really a grassroots effort that act, uh, activists uh, led many to believe. Well, hundreds of Democrats in this election cycle came out against the influence of America's super rich. Uh, we've got people, they've got money. New York Democratic Socialist candidate Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez, who won against uh, top Democrat Joe Crowley earlier this year, deriding um, the uh, use of uh, big money uh, in her campaign ad. Many progressive candidates have since followed suit, making the pledge not to take money from PACs financed by the ultra-rich, while simultaneously slamming Republicans for continuing, in their view, to rely on the multi-million dollar uh, rich to support their campaigns. But as Democrats shun direct donations from billionaires, they pour hundreds of millions into groups aimed at mobilizing voters and running ads against their political opponents. So it's just a, sort of an in-run around uh, what they say they opposed. Well, left-wing billionaire Tom Steyer uh, is uh, gearing up to uh, spend at least $110 million this election cycle in a bid to push the Democratic Party leftward and unseat dozens of Republicans. So far, he spent about $41 million in disclosed donations on outside groups between 2017 and 2018, according to the Center for Responsive Government, or politics, rather. Just this year, he already plowed some $30 million into midterms uh, on next-gen rising, a campaign to increase millennial turnout in the elections. Among the particular races, Steyer is uh, directing his network of political groups to spend about $5 million uh, on Andrew Gillum, a Democratic candidate for governor in Florida, in a bid to elect a non-Republican governor for the first time this century. Steyer is also funding a multi-million dollar um, campaign to impeach President Trump, dubbed Need to Impeach. The billionaire doubled his investment in the group from 20 to $40 million, while not ruling out that he will give even more money, according to Politico. In August, he slammed the Democratic Party establishment for lacking common sense for um, hesitating to push to remove Trump from office. Not a single person in the Senate Democrat caucus has shown the common sense or the sense of right and wrong to support impeachment, he went on to say. Well, there are others as well. Um, I don't have time to get into them, but uh, uh, among them, Michael Bloomberg, uh, Donald Sussman, James Simons, um, Reed Hoffman, Big money uh, being funneled through less conventional 
um, means to influence the outcome of the election. Meanwhile, an error at California's Department of Motor Vehicles caused more than a thousand people, including some who are in the who are not U.S. citizens, to be incorrectly registered to vote. State officials said on Monday when the program was first initiated, it was wondered what could possibly go wrong. Well, the DMV admitted that a processing error at agency field offices resulted in as many as 1,500 people being added to voter rolls between April uh, 23rd and September 25th. The widespread glitch was discovered after Randall Marquis, a Canadian citizen and legal U.S. resident living in California, notified the DNB that he'd received a piece of mail from the agency saying he was registered to vote. In response uh, to the alert, the agency ordered an internal audit and discovered hundreds of similar cases. Apparently, those uh, hundreds didn't contact the DMV. This error occurred when DMV technicians processed uh, customer requests at field offices to change voter eligibility responses on driver license applications, DMV wrote in a letter to California Secretary of State. Uh, the DMV said the improper registrations were made through no fault of the customer. None of the people who were registered to vote due to the error were illegal immigrants, the agency went on to say. We have worked quickly with the Department of Technology to correct these errors and have also updated the programming and added additional safeguards to improve the process. Now, it's not clear what that means for the 1,500 people who now have voter registration cards, uh, whether or not they will be uh, able to vote and if they were, have not been flagged, informed, or if they'll try to uh, beat the system by choosing to do so. We'll have to wait and see. Well, with one week to go before ballots get sent to, to most Oregon voters, the governor's race appears to be a, a close contest between Democratic incumbent Governor Kate Brown and her challenger, Republican lawmaker Newt Bueller. A new poll shows Brown with a slight lead over Bueller, 49 to 45 percent, with other candidates dividing up the remainder. The poll was conducted between the 24th of September and October 7th uh, by Riley Research Associates for KGW Media Group, The Oregonian and Oregon Live. The two Portland media Organizations are sponsoring a debate between the two gubernatorial candidates tonight at KGW Studio. The debate will air at 7 p.m. on KGW and live stream to digital audiences at their website on Facebook, Twitter pages and KGW News app. Uh, the political analyst uh, Lynn Bergstein said the closeness of the poll highlights the importance of each joint appearance. The stakes seem to be pretty high for this debate. If Bueller um, he's going to um, uh, make a move. This is the night to do it, Bergstein said. Uh, polls at this point reflect a lot of churn by the voters. Some people are coming to the race right now, so there's a lot of movement. The poll, which was um, answered by some 400 likely voters, also addressed the statewide measures that will be on the ballot in November. There is a margin of error of approximately plus or minus 5%. Well, the KGW Oregonian Oregon Live had requested a larger sample of likely voters than Riley Research Associates was able to achieve, but it did at least give uh, some indication. Among the respondents, 40 percent had a favorable rating of President Donald Trump. 60 percent viewed him unfavorably. For Republicans and Democrats, the perspective was sharp along party lines, with 95 percent of Democrats viewing the president unfavorably compared to just 11 percent of Republicans. Among independents, the split was 47 to 53 percent on either side. All right, 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Drew Hill. He is an author. He also works with Young Life. He's a pastor. His book, Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. To The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to talk about a book. It's titled Alongside. It's a much-needed resource for both parents and those who serve in youth ministry. In it, Drew Hill, the author, unpacks the challenges teenagers face and how youth leaders and parents can share the gospel with them. 
at a crucial age. It's full of practical insights, biblical knowledge, and it's an invitation to love teenagers well with the hope of the gospel. Now, that's a challenge that seems daunting to many who care about them but don't quite know how to connect. Our teenage friends are full of questions and longings. They're trying to figure out who they are, where they belong, and if they matter during this pivotal time of development while they're uh, facing new realities of loneliness and isolation despite their social media followers. Well, teenagers want to be chased and alongside bring scripture to life, helps parents and those in youth ministry practically connect the life of Jesus to the lives of their adolescent children and friends. Very, very practical. Well, Drew Hill is a pastor and author in Greensboro, North Carolina. He's also on staff with the National Young Life Office and provides resources for thousands of young of youth leaders rather around the world through his blog at younglifeleaders.org. Drew writes, consults, regularly speaks to teenagers, parents, and youth workers. He and Natalie uh, have three children. And Drew's new book, Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel, published by New Growth Press, is the subject of our conversation. And I hope a, a book to add to your library so that you can connect well with young people. Thank you so much for joining us, Drew. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the you um, in the book... Um, alongside, you bring not only scripture, but some pretty captivating personal stories that are sometimes just heartbreaking as you help us better understand the heart of young people and uh, how we might better approach them and understand them before even making the attempt. Talk a little bit about your work in young life and your work with young people. You know, when I was 13 years old, I felt like the Lord called me to a lifetime of youth ministry. And I was a teenager myself, but my heart just broke for all the folks around me that I saw that were trying to find life in other places. And I feel like I just grasped the Lord's love for me, and I wanted to share it with other people. And so since I was 13, I've been doing that through the church, through other parachurch organizations like Young Life, through group homes. And I've learned a lot along the way. The Lord has really been gracious to allow me to work for a lot of wise people who've trained me well. And I just wanted to share some of the things that I've learned along the way because I know how hard it is to be a parent of a teenager and to be in ministry with teenagers. It is often heartbreaking. And I really feel like my call in life is to kind of be a translator between adults and teenagers and help adults understand what teenagers are really going through. Well, and you're you're so needed because I think a lot of adults are scared to death. They don't really know how to approach. They, their hearts are right. They desperately want to have a relationship. They want to encourage young people, but don't really understand the challenges that this generation faces. Paint a picture for us of just how challenging it might be for a young person growing up today, finding their place in the world, let alone finding a connection with Jesus. You know, being a teenager in 2018 is way different than it was when I was a teenager. They are growing up facing the reality that every time they pick up their phone, they're holding this question mark in their hand. And the question or do I belong? Do I matter? Do people like me? Am I beautiful enough? And, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, I had those same questions, but I couldn't find the answers anytime I wanted when I picked up my phone that was in my pocket. That how many people liked a picture that I posted or how many people commented on that. And so the anxiety levels and the levels of stress and shame and the pressure to perform are so high now. I heard a psychologist recently say that seven to nine-year-olds now are experiencing a level of anxiety that was diagnosable in the 1960s to the point where that person will be hospitalized. And that is the norm for a seven to nine-year-old now in our culture to experience that level of anxiety. I caught my son today who's six years old with my wife's phone and he was taking selfies of himself flexing with his shirt off. Mm. And I said, Hutch, where did you learn this? 
and he he just laughed and kept taking the pictures. I don't know where he learned it from. Maybe it's from being a youth pastor's son and watching other people <laughs> do it. But we live in this world where that is the lens we look through is we're always focusing on ourselves, and it becomes a heavy burden to bear. Mm. You invite readers to step into the unfiltered world of teenagers. And as I mentioned, there were some things, some quotes from uh, from teenagers that were very difficult to read because it it showed such a, a an emptiness and a loneliness or brokenness that I think many of us um, don't recognize. We might look at their behavior and think one thing, but to see on the inside was a major challenge to really uh, come face-to-face with. Yes, in the second chapter of the book, it's entitled SOS, I include a lot of actual online posts that I've watched my friends in North Carolina post publicly online for people to read. Now, granted, a lot of them have private profiles, and so their parents don't follow them, but they post very honest things. And I had one parent call me um, and say, Drew, I know that you know, you're know you saying that teenagers are like this, but I just don't think that my teenagers are facing these things. Mm. And what she what she didn't realize is that her teenagers, you know, had written some of the things that were actually in this book, and the the some of the quotes that I had written down. And I, and I told her, you know, I've got to be honest with you. I don't want to break the confidence of your children, but they are facing these pressures, and you've got to talk with them about it. Now, some of us might imagine, well, if we just cut off social media, that will that will pretty much take care of the problem. Does it all stem from uh, social media, the internet, or are there other influences that we need to be aware of? You know, I think the pressures of, of life in general have just increased. I mean, I think social media has played a large role in that. But even if you prevented kids from having social media, they're going to feel like they are living in a, a different world because their friends all have it. And so they're going to feel alone and isolated because of that. I do recommend for parents to really wait as long as possible, you know, especially at least into high school and if possible until they get a car before they give their kid a smartphone because it really is just a, an entry to a world that is full of a lot of temptations, a lot of distractions. And thankfully, there are now some helpful resources like Covenant Eyes and ProtectYoungEyes.com. And there are some things we can do, but we're not going to be able to protect our kids. We've got to get to a place where we can really trust the Lord with them through wisdom. You know, we've got to, we've got to be wise in how we are handling these things. And the new um, Apple software, it's called iOS 12, it's just come out. In the past few weeks, there's a screen time element in the settings where if you have an iPhone, you can go into the settings and click on the screen time and you can set limits. If I want my child to be able to use social media for 15 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day or an hour. Um, But for me, it was so eye-opening to just look and see how many times on average I picked up my phone in a day. I looked at the first week and I was averaging picking up my phone over a hundred times in the day. And I looked at how many hours I'd spent on my phone. Hmm. And the first day alone, I'd spent over six hours on my phone, almost an entire work day. And our kids are really being shaped by the liturgy and the practice of picking that phone up over and over again. And that has played a significant role, but it's influenced the culture as a whole to where grades and school pressures now are so much higher. The pressure for it to be pretty. You're being judged you know, all the time by how you look and you can edit your photo and put it online. Kids are facing incredible pressure. So we as adults have to realize that it's different and spend some time trying to empathize and walk in their shoes and realize just how hard that is. Well, where do we begin? We're talking to parents. We're talking about adults who care about uh, young people. We, we're talking with youth workers. Where do you begin? Is it best to first try to understand young people, engage in meaningful conversation? How do you suggest we start? You know, uh, the main part of the book, uh, and it's about 15 chapters. The book's about 30 short chapters. I wrote it 
as a devotional for parents and for people in youth ministry to be able to read, and it's based on Scripture, and there's questions at the end of each chapter, sections for parents and for people in youth ministry. But that main section of the book is called The Pursuit, and I base each chapter off this question. What did Jesus do outside of the miracle? Often when we're reading the Gospels, we see Jesus do these unbelievable miracles. We see Him heal people. We see Him do things that we couldn't believe, but the Gospel writers often record small things in those stories that are powerful and are meaningful and that we can learn from. So one of the chapters, I I look at the encounter that Jesus had when the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and he didn't just heal her, but it says in the Gospels that that Jesus listened to her whole story. And so a, a big part of it for parents is just being available and providing a lot of time so that when they are ready to share their stories, we are ready to hear them. How many parents and how many youth workers give kids that availability and give them the time where there's not a phone in between them. You know, the word media itself means between, something that has come between us. But we've got to create boundaries and margin in our homes where we're putting our screens away, where we are allowing kids to have time to not interrupt us, but to know that we are available and that we want to listen to their story. Often they're not going to be ready to share it, but that's why having a large quantity of time Mm -hmm. we are available is so important if we want to ever experience those quality conversations. We're talking about the book Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel. Drew Hill is my guest. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 53 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Talking with, uh, excuse me, pastor and author Drew Hill. His latest book is Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel. Uh, And it's a great practical book, not only for parents and adults who care about uh, teenagers and preteens, but also for those who are in youth ministry. Now, one of the things you encourage your readers to do is to uh, uh, encounter the daily lives and engage the hearts of teenagers rather than just their behavior, which is always the temptation for one generation to look at how the other behaves and to focus on that. Um, but you encourage us to, to go deeper. Yes, I was just recently rereading the story of the paralytic in the Gospels. And if you remember in the story, what does Jesus do before he actually heals the man and and allows him to walk? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. He addresses the heart issue before he addresses the external. And so often, you know, when it comes to our relationships with teenagers, we are so focused on getting them to stop cussing or getting them to stop, you know, looking at their phone. And we are so focused on their behavior patterns that we often miss dealing with the heart first. And we, you know, we look at the life of Christ and Christ was always pointing at our hearts and saying, this is what it's about. Because the Pharisees, they had the behaviors down. They they knew mm-hmm. how to, to fake it and live it out. But Jesus was so concerned about our hearts. How we get to our kids' hearts is so important. And really, I think it begins with us inviting them into ours. So often we're afraid to share our own stories with kids because we're afraid that if they know the truth about us, then we're not going to have any credibility with them. What the reality is, kids are smart, and they can see through things, and they know if we're struggling with shame. They know if we feel like we're addicted to our phones. And so what we've got to do is we've got to confess to them. We've got to tell them, I'm sorry that I've chosen my phone over you. I'm sorry that I've not been a present dad. I played basketball with my six-year-old son this afternoon in North Carolina, and, and I just realized it was the first time I'd played basketball with him in months because I've just been busy and he's been wanting to play with me. And I was like, I've written this book about being present with your children. And I haven't even done it in the life of my own son. And the Lord just convicted me. 
And for a moment, you know, there was guilt and shame. But then, you know, the Holy Spirit reminded me that I have a God who loves to be with me, who loves to be my father, who loves to walk alongside me. And if I can, if I can realize how true that is, then it's going to springload me to love my own son that way. Mm. We're talking about the book is titled Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel. Uh, my guest is Drew Hill. What would you say is the greatest challenge in encountering young people uh, in a way where there's a real connection and not one generation lording over uh, the other? You know, it's trust. Kids, kids have a really hard time trusting adults. And you know, there, there's a natural point in most teenagers' lives when they are going to have a hard time trusting their parents because what's built into their DNA is this period of trying to break free and become independent. And so they're going to naturally push away. But it's key for us as adults to build a network of other trusted adults around these kids' lives and to not just try to draw them to ourselves, but to really draw them to Christ. And in order to do that, sometimes we have to lay down ourselves. We have to lay down our desire for us to necessarily be the one that they're telling all their secrets to and for us to be the one they're necessarily having those deep conversations with. We have open seats at our dinner table. What would it look like to invite other youth leaders or young life leaders or older friends to come and tell their story at our dinner table Mm. and to have our teenage kids hear these stories of transformation and testimonies of what God has done in people's lives and really try to build a team of people who are around them. What would it look like to to say, hey, my desire for you, 16-year-old daughter, is that when you graduate from high school in two years, I'd love at your graduation party if you had 10 folks who'd been praying for you for two years, or if you had five folks. If we were going to try to figure out who those five folks would be, who are some people that come to mind for you? Help your kids build a team around them of folks who are praying for them and investing in their life. Teach them to be dependent upon Christ and upon others by being dependent yourself. So often everything in them is wanting independence, but we've got to model that the best way to have a relationship with the Lord is to be dependent In our culture, so often we feel like if we can have money, then we can have control. I think it begins with us giving away the money, giving away the control, giving away control of our calendar and saying, I've got to depend upon the Lord to lead me. I want to model that for you as your youth leader or as your parent. One of the things you mentioned earlier in our conversation is the challenge of of undivided attention, the challenge of of time, and that requires sacrifice on the part of uh, those, uh, particularly adults, who care about uh, young people but may not recognize really the sacrifice that's required in order to have a real impact. And that's a challenge to uh, to all of us and certainly to your readers. Totally. I mean, one of the reasons I haven't regularly played basketball with my son is because it doesn't seem very productive. You know, it's not something I can cross off my list. It's not another book that I can write. It's not another podcast I can record or radio interview I could be on. It doesn't seem to increase my status in the world. But again, our world has told us that that is what's important. Status is important. That making the money is important. Why? So that we can have control. So what I'm doing when I say I'm not going to pay attention to my to-do list, I'm not going to pay attention to my son, I'm going to pay attention to my son is we're saying, I'm giving up control of my status, and I'm going to be what God's called me to be. I'm going to be a dad, and I'm going to walk alongside my son, just as God has walked alongside of me. My guess is that doesn't go unnoticed over time. Oh, I mean, it totally... I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I've had so many folks come alongside me and walk with me and pay attention to me. I mean, when I was called to ministry as a 13-year-old, my pastors, who were pastors of a 5,000-member church, 
they they listened to me. I remember them inviting me into the library of their office in their home and teaching me how to study the Bible, teaching me how to use a commentary. I mean, how often are pastors in our culture now even doing that with young people? What would it look like for a, a lead pastor of a church to you know say, I'm not just going to invest in adults, but I'm going to also invest in kids? Or what would it look like for a dad or a mom to say to a 10-year-old, hey, I want to start teaching you now how to study the Bible. I, I got to spend time this week with a friend and uh, a hero of mine who's been in youth ministry for 50 plus years, a guy named Chuck Reinhold. And he um, is struggling with dementia right now, and he lives with his daughter who's around my age. And she told me that every morning since she has been a kid, that she's been around her dad, she remembers that the first thing she sees when she walks in the den is her dad in prayer and studying the scripture with a pen, underline, journaling. I want my kids to think of me that way when they're that age. I want my kids to know that I sought the Lord first, but so often I had to go to screens before Scripture. We, if we want our kids to, to know the depth and riches of the gospel, then it's going to take us modeling it for them to see. Well, the book is excellent. I would highly recommend it. Again, the title, Alongside Loving Teenagers with the Gospel. Drew Hill, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Folks could go to alongsideteenagers.com to read more about the book, see videos, find resources, and find links to buy it on Amazon. And see your family as well. (laughs) Yes, they are some cute kids. (laughs) They are. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back seven minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, second hour. Glad to have you with us. Uh, portions, by the way, of our program brought to you by Zero Res. In this hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Judy Bush and Joni Militich. They're with Prep for Kids. And this is the ministry that provides a release time Bible training for kids in public schools. It really is one of the best kept secrets that I'm trying really hard uh, to unmask because the opportunities for reaching out to children in our community communities is um, is vast. Uh, we're going to talk with Judy and Joni about that. Also, they have their banquet coming up in uh, November. We'll give you the details. And you are invited to come. Now, they have supporters who have underwritten the cost of the banquet. You just need to come, learn more about the ministry, and then prayerfully ask, you know, Lord, what would you have me do uh, to come alongside and help? They have uh, they have done all the work for you so that you can simply get the training and the materials and uh, have a great time uh, with kids. So we'll talk with them about that. That's coming up later in this hour. Well, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy is introducing a bill this week that's going to fully fund the president's planned wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, setting the midterm elections up as a referendum on immigration policy. That's according to a Breitbart News. Uh, they've learned it exclusively. Um, we intend on having a full-fledged discussion on how to compete, uh, complete our mission to secure the border. And yes, we will have a fight about this, Ryan said, on the, the um, uh, of the wall fight that looms at a news conference on Monday. Well, now uh, the organization can exclusively report exactly what is expected to happen in the lead-up to the immediate aftermath of the midterm elections. First, we're being told McCarthy, his office confirmed, uh, will introduce a bill that will uh, include the full funding for the border wall, about $23.4 billion more than what was already um, allocated for the wall effort, as well as several other enforcement measures uh, that have already passed the House, uh, but not yet the Senate. Congress has already directed $1.6 billion to wall funding in the omnibus bill for fiscal year of 2018 that just passed Congress. And McCarthy's new bill titled the Build the Wall Enforcement uh, Enforce the Law Act uh, would take the wall the rest of the way, in addition to providing for a variety of enforcement measures. 
For decades, uh, and this is a quote from McCarthy in a statement, uh, for decades, America's inability to secure our borders and stop illegal immigration has encouraged millions to undertake the dangerous journey to come here in violation of our laws and create a huge loophole to the legal channels to the immigration process where America welcomes immigrants to our country. He went on to say that President Trump's election was a wake-up call to Washington, although here we are two years in and uh, that issue has not been addressed. We've got uh, the president has a, a majority in the House, a majority in the Senate, and yet this has uh, not passed thus far. Now, that's a simplistic view because there's a lot more to it. It's not simply a matter of having the majority. But nonetheless, um, he says that the president's election was a wake-up call to Washington. The American people want us to build the wall and enforce the law. Maintaining strong borders is one of the basic responsibilities of any nation. For too long, America has failed in its responsibility. Well, at this point, there's an ongoing disagreement as to whether or not uh, that is precisely how we want to move forward. The great divide that um, has fissured and a variety of issues, this being one of them, has divided the country to the degree that uh, what we might have agreed upon at one point regarding what the what the nation ought to do and the value of national borders and the enforcement of the law uh, no longer stands as uh, something to be taken for granted. Well, the enforcement measures expected to be in this wall funding legislation include, among other legislation, Kate's Law, an enforcement bill named after Kate Steinle, who was uh, killed in a sanctuary city of San Francisco. Also included will be the bill the House has already passed targeting sanctuary cities, the No Sanctuary for Criminals Act, which passed the House last uh, last year, the Criminal Alien Gang Member Removal Act, which passed the House last year. Notice we're just talking about the House and not the Senate. That's going to be in the bill, as well as two House resolutions on immigration that passed the House this year, one upholding and honoring uh, immigration and customs enforcement, or ICE officers, and the other admonishing illegal alien voting in a number of American cities. Well, his forthcoming bill will not deal with the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, uh, the illegal executive amnesty program that the uh, the former administration implemented, granting temporary status administratively to uh, those in the country illegally from their youth, or visa programs. In other words, the bill will be enforcement and security only. So that's one of the things to expect following the midterm elections. Now, there's a lot riding on the midterm elections and whether or not uh, Mr. McCarthy has the it will be in a position where his party is in the majority in which uh, that kind of legislation might have any chance at all. And of course, we have a very contentious uh, election coming up in about a month. Meanwhile, former top FBI lawyer James Baker gave explosive closed door testimony last week detailing for congressional investigators how the Russia probe, probe rather, was handled in an abnormal fashion. That's his uh, choice of term. Abnormal fashion reflecting political bias, according to two lawmakers present for that deposition. Some of the things that were shared were explosive in nature. That's what Representative Mark Meadows uh, says. Uh, this witness confirmed the things uh, were done in an abnormal fashion. That's extremely troubling, end quote. Well, Meadows claimed the abnormal handling of the probe into alleged coordination between Russian officials and the Trump presidential campaign was a reflection of inherent bias that seems to be evident in certain circles. The FBI agent who opened the Russia case, Peter Strzok, FBI lawyer Lisa Page and others sent politically charged texts and have since left the bureau. Well, Baker, who had a closely uh, close working relationship, rather, with former FBI director James Comey, left the bureau earlier this year. Well, the lawmakers who uh, would not provide many specifics about the private transcribed interview 
uh, citing a confidentiality agreement with uh, Baker and his attorney, however, did indicate uh, in broad terms that the that uh, Baker was cooperative and forthcoming about the genesis of the Russia case in 2016 and about the surveillance warrant application for the Trump campaign aide Carter Page in October of the same year. Well, during the time that the FBI was putting that uh, DOJ and FBI uh, were putting together the FISA surveillance warrant uh, during that time prior to the election. There was another source giving information directly to the FBI, which we found the source to be pretty explosive. That's a quote from Representative Jim Jordan. Metals and uh, Jordan wouldn't elaborate on the source, which is uh, almost prefer they not bring it up if they're not going to tell you what they're referring to. And they wouldn't answer any questions about whether the source was a reporter. They did stress that the source who provided information to the FBI's Russia case was not previously known to congressional Investigator. So that's something of an explosive addition to what we think we already know. Well, Baker is at the heart of the surveillance abuse allegations, and his deposition lays the groundwork for next week's planned closed-door interview with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, Baker, and the FBI's top lawyer. Uh, they helped secure the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant on page, as well as three subsequent renewals. Well, prior to the deposition, Republican investigators say they believed Baker could explain why information about the British ex-spy behind the salacious uh, dossier, Christopher Steele, and his apparent bias against then-candidate Trump were withheld from the FISA court and whether other exculpatory information was known to Rosenstein when he signed the final FISA renewal for Page in June of 2017. So it continues. We know little more than we knew before, but one can only hope that as more information is brought to light to uh, insiders that ultimately that will result in an end to the investigation and a final report. Not holding my breath, however. 15 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to continue looking at the news, so stay with us. Um, we'll talk a bit about uh, the, the president, the vice president, rather, uh, who has some warnings about China and Google's data breach. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res, Zero Residue. Well, Vice President Mike Pence on Thursday warned that China has in, has initiated rather an unprecedented effort to influence the 2018 and 2020 elections. Now, while so much attention is focused on Russia, the vice president says, no, we need to be looking at China as well, warning that the communist nation is re, is responding to the president's tough trade policies. Uh, quoting the vice president, he said in a speech at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., the Chinese Communist Party is rewarding or coercing American businesses, movie studios, universities, think tanks, scholars, journalists and local, state and federal officials. Uh, worst of all, China has initiated an unprecedented effort to influence American public opinion in 2018 elections and the environment uh, leading into the 2020 presidential election. Well, he made it clear that he believed China was aiming to unseat President Trump in response to his policies on trade. To put it bluntly, the vice president said President Trump's leadership is working and China wants a different American president. Well, Pence uh, pointed to Trump's tough line on Beijing, particularly his decision to impose $250 billion in tariffs on goods coming from the country. And he said that in response, Beijing is using its powers to interfere in the domestic policies 
policies of this country and to interfere in the policies and politics of the United States. He said that Chinese officials have tried to persuade business leaders to condemn administrative policies using methods such as denying a business license to a corporation if it didn't condemn those policies. He also accuses China of targeting industries and states that would play an important role in the November midterms and demanding that Hollywood portray China in a positive light, threatening studios and producers with punishment if they don't. Additionally, the vice president warned of the influence by Chinese media outlets, warning that China radio broadcast in American cities, while China Global Television Network reached more than 75 million Americans. And it gets uh, its marching orders directly from its Communist Party masters, he said. Well, the Trump administration has been roiled by the FBI special counsel investigation into alleged Russia interference in the 2016 election, and intelligence officials have warned about the danger of Russian meddling in the midterms. But the vice president said that a senior member of the intelligence community recently told him that what the Russians are doing pales in comparison to what China is doing is doing rather across the country. The vice president also warned of four threats that uh, China poses to the United States. One is cyber espionage. Chinese spies found vulnerabilities in the U.S. technology supply chain to infiltrate computer networks of nearly 30 U.S. companies, including Apple and Amazon, as well as banks and federal contractors. Bloomberg Businessweek first reported Thursday of last week, the same day the vice president took China to task. The federal contractors included companies that have worked with the Central Intelligence Agency and and with the International Space Station. Uh, he, they also warn of uh, election meddling, which we've already touched on somewhat. Uh, White House National Security Council referred to the president's announcement from August the 2nd about a new federal government-wide initiative to help state and local authorities bolster their defenses against cyber attacks targeting their elections. And then there's an effort to squeeze U.S. companies. The vice president called out Google for its seeming willingness to work with the Chinese government. Google, he said, should immediately end development of the Dragonfly app that will strengthen Communist Party censorship and compromise the, po- the privacy rather of Chinese customers. Uh, the vice president also noted that Chinese officials tried to influence business leaders. In one recent example, China threatened to deny a business license for a major U.S. corporation if they refused to speak out against our administrative policy. However, Pence also said more companies are taking a firmer stance against doing business there. And finally, military buildup. The vice president also warned of China's military buildup, saying China now spends as much on its military as the rest of Asia combined. And Beijing has prioritized capabilities to erode America's military advantage on land, at sea, in the air and in space. He went on to say China wants nothing less than to push the United States of America from the Western Pacific and attempt to prevent us from coming to uh, the aid of our allies. But they will fail. America had hoped that economic liberalization would bring China into a greater partnership with us and with the world. Instead, China has chosen economic aggression, which has in turn emboldened its growing military. Well, China's People's Liberation Army is stepping up. Um, open source spying on U.S. military and other foreign uh, militaries that will utilize artificial intelligence means, we're being uh, told. It's reported in the Washington Times that according to a procurement notice from from, China's Central Military Commission, the new database is a six-month project to set up an open source intelligence database on foreign militaries. The revealing notice was published by the commission's PLA Equipment Development Department, whose director... Uh, Lieutenant General Li Shang-Fu uh, was slapped with U.S. sanctions this week for buying arms from Russia. 
The database will likely benefit from from China's theft of 22.1 million records on American federal workers, including those with security clearances from the Office of Personnel Management in 2015. These breaches have consequence. China's uh, hackers also stole an estimated 80 million records on Americans from healthcare insurance giant Anthem. U.S. officials believe the mass data collection by China is being used with artificial intelligence software as part of both cyber and human espionage operations. In light of the diverse sources, complex varieties, and huge quantities of open source intelligence, coupled with its high collection costs and the existing issues of scattered collection resources and low utilization efficiency, an open source intelligence database on foreign militaries and national defense is to be established, the online notice said. Well, open source intelligence on major countries and regions, militaries and defense industries are to be collected and the intelligence and data processing is to be prosecuted to provide service and support to relevant work. Meanwhile, the U.S. industries responsible for production of military weapons systems show a number of vulnerabilities, a White House report revealed, according to a senior administration official. The 107-page report identifies at least 300 specific vulnerabilities, including a major issue regarding the skilled labor gap that the administration says demands immediate action. And while the entire list of vulnerabilities is classified, the report highlights some of the problems the Department of Defense is facing. For example, there is a limited supply of the fabric used for troops' tents and uniforms and of the rare earth minerals used to make radars, the Wall Street Journal reported. That could require decisive effort to modernize and revitalize the domestic fiber and textile industries, the report says. Meanwhile, a low supply of American welders also leaves the defense industry base at risk, according to Peter Navarro, director of the White House Office for Trade and the Manufacturing Policy. What you wind up with are single points of failure, he said. Single sources for key components like propeller shafts for our subs, gun barrels for the tanks, fuel for our rockets, space-based infrared detectors for missile defense. So we're at risk in many different ways. For years, officials at the Pentagon and in the defense industry have recognized supply chain issues from securing specialized ball bearings to the existence of only a single U.S. plant for making propellers for the Navy. And the Pentagon also said this was a wake-up call. Again, Peter Navarro uh, saying that uh, providing the template for a modern uh, trade and warfare is critical to our nation's security. Meanwhile, Bill and Hillary Clinton on Monday announced that they will embark on an international 13-city speaking tour shortly after November's midterm elections, with tickets running as high as $745 and speculation swirling that the former Secretary of State could announce yet another presidential bid. Now, the tour, which kicks off in Las Vegas, is set to run from November 2018 to May of 2019. It will include several stops in the U.S., and Canada, and we'll uh, cover the high-profile couple's thoughts on one of the United States' most controversial and unpredictable presidential elections, according to the event's organizer, Live Action, or rather, Live Nation, which also handles speaking arrangements for former First Lady Michelle Obama and musicians like Taylor Swift and Jay-Z. Attendees will have the opportunity to hear one-of-a-kind conversations with the two leaders as they uh, tell their stories from some of the most uh, impactful moments. Impactful. When did that become a word? It's just a pet peeve of mine. Impactful. It's not a word. It either impacts or it doesn't. Anyway, I digress. Anyway, the most impactful moments in modern history. That's the statement from Live Nation that's putting on the tour. The focus is poised to rankle liberal commentators who pushed for Clinton's to stop focusing on her unexpected loss in the 2016 race to allow the new candidates and issues to emerge. Isn't there someone who can convince this accomplished, inspiring, barrier-breaking superwoman to stop whining about 2016? That's a quote from Michelle Cottle, a New York Times editorial writer, 
writing for The Atlantic earlier this year. Someone, anyone, she asked. Well, the Clintons, during public appearances and elsewhere, have also come under extensive fire from the Me Too movement in recent weeks, not only for past transgressions, but also for what critics have called their recent efforts to paper over um, them dismissively. Um, Well, in January, former Secretary of State Clinton drew condemnation from liberal advocates after she failed to apologize for choosing not to terminate a campaign staffer accused of sexual harassment, while Clinton wrote on Facebook that, in retrospect, she should have made uh, the decision to keep em- she should not have made the decision to keep employing the staffer, Faith Advisor Burns Strider. Uh, so she also explained in detail um, when uh, why she did it. Well, there are other issues with regard to her um, co-host. I'm not quite sure how to describe. Uh, him on the platform, but we'll see how many people, and I'm sure there will be plenty of them, are willing to pay upwards of $800 to hear the Clintons once again talk about old times. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk with Judy Bush and Joni Militich, Prep for Kids. Great release time program. Also a banquet coming up. We would love for you to come. It's already been uh, paid for. We just want you to come and learn more about this great ministry and how you might partner with them. That's coming up next right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I'm glad you're listening now, particularly because I have a couple of friends in studio, Judy Bush and Joni Militich. They're both with Prep for Kids. We want to remind you of this great ministry opportunity and also let you know about a banquet that's coming up that you can learn more about this uh, strategic ministry. First of all, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar with Prep for Kids, that stands for Portland Release Time Education Program. It's a nonprofit, non-denominational Christian outreach. It uh, reaches out to children who are attending public schools in the greater Portland area to help them and their parents find purpose and direction in life by using the Bible during that release time religious education class. Now, I think it's surprising when people learn about Prep for Kids for the first time that it's even a lawful uh, opportunity that is extended to uh, to students in the Portland metro area, that Oregon does have a statute that says this is uh, permitted. Can you describe how this is possible and how it happens? Well, we're just starting our 35th year, but even before that, there was a law on the books in Oregon, an Oregon statute that was a parent's rights law. And the parents have a right to come in and sign permission for their child to attend these classes during school time. Mm-hmm. Um but they have to go off the premises. So we take them to a church and um, then we just teach them the word of God. And of course in that they're, you know, we're talking about Jesus and we're so excited because so many of these kids have never ever heard about Jesus or, you know, any of these things that are so important for mm-hmm. children these days. And they're so lacking in. Now parents have to give their permission in order for the students to attend. I imagine some listeners might think, uh, you know, with schools already struggling, taking a, a child off campus, uh, for the purpose of release time education, how does that impact their overall performance? Well, studies have shown that they actually do better. They, you know, this is we, there's a national organization with release time that's called School Ministries, but they're, they've done studies. They've had the studies done that say these children, you know, that are taught the Word of God every week, that they actually do better you know, the way they act and in their schoolwork um, because of that. Well, it's so interesting that kids are given an opportunity to learn kind of the broader context as to why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Is there a God? And if so, who is this God and how do I relate to him? 
I, I think a lot of kids are untethered to anything of permanence, and this really helps them to better understand the world they're in and how to navigate in it. One of the things that excites us the most is that um, somewhere between 50 to 70 percent yearly of the students who are enrolled are enrolled by parents who are unaffiliated with any church. They just have uh, an openness for their children to be exposed to the claims of Christ and the historical document that the scripture is. And let's talk about the the kind of classes that they attend. What's the focus? Obviously, you're, you're teaching the Bible, but what is your emphasis this year? Well, this year it's Genesis. We are starting our cycle through again, and um, we are really excited because this is a kind of a doing warfare with the enemy because in the public schools, you know, they don't want that at all. They want you to talk about evolution. And yet we're so excited to be able to get them into the Word of God. We have a great curriculum, Answers in Genesis, um, publishes it. And it is very, very clear as we the kids open their Bible and we teach them, you know, okay, what does this verse say? And what does it mean? And then well, how could this apply to your life? Mm-hmm. And that's our goal is we teach these kids week by week to take the Word of God and internalize it for themselves and over time to actually develop a biblical worldview. Mm. And one of the things I have noticed is children who are part of Prep for Kids really enjoy it. You're not talking about children who are mm-hmm. chained to a desk and <laughs> a, a brusque taskmaster yeah. kind of making their way through the aisles, telling the kids to do the lesson. They're singing. They're having fun. They enjoy this release time Absolutely. activity. Yes, they do. In fact, this year, maybe even more so than others, we've had, I think, four different elementary class kids, fifth graders saying, but we want it next year. We want it in middle school. And so now we have three of them up and pretty well going. We have one more that we're still looking for a team to teach it. That Sometimes that's the hardest part. Mm, but yeah. um, these kids do. They, they want. They want the word of God. And they, you don't have to talk them into coming. Now, one of the things I'm, I'm sure our listeners are wondering is how does this program, how is it funded? How is it uh, manned? And if there's a church, for example, that's located in close proximity to a school, how do you make that connection? We invite any church um, to contact our office at the number you'll be reviewing for them. And we meet with them. Uh, we have basically a ready-to-go package for how their church can raise up a team of four individuals, ideally, to be the teachers and the helpers. And we interface with the school for them and provide the structure, the materials, the Bible, the training, the Bibles, I mean, and the training so that their team can be equipped for these kids to be brought to their facility. Well, this is such a tremendous opportunity. How widespread is it in the Portland metro area, and how much wider could it be if there were more volunteers, churches, and others who are willing to come alongside and help? Well, that's our big burden, is we've got, oh, well, we're in probably about 30 schools this year. But there's like 200 more. Mm. We cover, we go out to Banks, we go to Forest Grove, we go to Oregon City, we go to Gresham. Um, but there's so many more, that, so many kids that have never heard about Jesus. And so that's our desire, that if God would raise up teams of people, you don't have to all be teachers, but to come as a, as a team to help drive or help be there to work on memory work or whatever it is, um, it's just wide open. And the kids come, and we can get the word out, they want it. What a tremendous opportunity when you think about um, the state has made it possible uh, for uh, with parents consent for a child to go off campus for about an hour, I I suppose. Mm -hmm. And they have an opportunity to learn from the Bible. When I was growing up, everybody went to Sunday school. Everybody had a basic understanding of what the Bible had to say. You may not have been a believer, but you had a, a general understanding and a regard for God's word. 
That's no longer the case. Fewer and fewer children have any knowledge or understanding of Scripture. And I think for a lot of parents, they are interested in their children getting a moral education, so they see this as an opportunity for them, and it helps them in raising their children. Mm-hmm. If we miss the opportunity, um, oh, what a, what a waste. Um, about 200 more schools. Well, uh, at least 200 more at schools. At least 200 more schools um, in our area alone. Yeah, and we we aren't a church. We are, you know, we base off this law. We're a nonprofit organization, but we need the churches. We need to connect with them because they're the ones that can really reach the families. They're the ones that can give these families a solid, you know, Christian family to be a part of. And so we are always looking for churches that mm-hmm. will actually partner with us. And um, we do our piece. And then, of course, the kids move on, but the church stays there. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point. Once you have uh, developed a relationship with the children, then you also have opportunities with the uh, the parents as well. And this is becomes kind of a family opportunity. Mm-hmm. And for churches that want to make a real impact in their respective communities, this is a great um, way to do that. You have a connection with the school. You can perhaps minister even better to those who are serving there. And I just want to encourage uh, any church listening um, Uh, Any members of churches who would say, you know, I'd like to encourage and develop a program in our church where we're close by or maybe at some distance, but would like to be involved. We're talking about prep for kids. And this is a Portland release time education program that exposes young people to the gospel. Now, what's the age age range of kids who are in the program? Well, most of our programs are elementary, Uh so first grade through fifth grade. And then we have about half dozen now, the middle school, which are sixth to eighth grade. Okay. Now, the number to call for more information is 503-281-7764. Again, that's 503-281-7764. Well, another way to learn more about Prep for Kids is the annual uh, banquet celebration, and that's coming up in November. Tell us a little bit about uh, this opportunity to learn more and to be involved. We'll be um, November 3rd, Saturday night from 6 to 8 at the Portland Airport Embassy Suites. And uh, generous sponsors have already covered the cost for the evening. And we invite uh, clusters of people from churches, individuals that um, want to just come on their own to this event to call us. We'll save you a place. And we'll be sharing the vision, the, the potential, the possibilities that night. And having some testimonies, firsthand stories of what the Lord's doing. There's also opportunity to help uh, support the ministry. They don't receive money from any public source. So... Uh, what we as followers of Christ uh, provide uh, can help this ministry to continue to expand. Now, this year, I'm especially excited because your speaker is Donna Stutzman. And as uh, I've mentioned her before on the air, she's my sister. And I'm just <laughs> right. really excited. She uh, just retired this past year. She's been a teacher for 20 plus years. Uh, she has um, two kids, son and daughter, both who went through Prep for Kids. I don't remember if they were students or they were helpers, but they have a connection with Prep for Kids. And I'm just excited that she's going to be the speaker this year. Well, we're excited, too. I can hardly wait. Yeah, my, my sister, if I you know just say so myself, she's incredible. And I think she's going to bring some music as well. When yes. Comes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So looking forward to that. Now, that's coming up on November the 3rd. That's a Saturday. It starts at 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock p.m. at Embassy Suites at the Portland Airport. And again, you can uh, call 503-281-7764. That's 503-281-7764. Or you can email prepoffice.com at gmail.com. 
Again, that's prepoffice at gmail.com. You need to be in touch by October the 30th, but it's going to be a great evening if I do say so myself. With, <laughs> with oh, we're so excited. Speaking. We just want you to come. <laughs> we just really want you to come. It's, it's a very special evening. It's the only time when we really bring all of our classes together mm-hmm. as far as the team, the volunteers, and sometimes it's really amazing. People look, oh my goodness, you really have this many classes, um, but we want so many more just because there's so many kids that have never heard about Jesus. Yeah. Yes, so many. And it's a great opportunity. It really is a celebration to reflect on what God has done through this ministry and its volunteers over the last uh, year and to also look forward to uh, the needs that lay ahead and opportunities that he has given us that we really want to seize because you don't know how long that window of opportunity will remain mm-hmm. open here in Oregon or uh, across the country. So again, that uh, event is coming up on Saturday, November the 3rd, 6 o'clock p.m. at the Embassy Suites in Portland da- uh, Airport. And the number to call 503-281-7764, or you can email prepoffice at gmail.com. We'd really appreciate it if you do that by Tuesday, October the 30th. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today, and we look forward to uh, hearing great things about the work of Prep for for Kids in schools all across the Portland metro area. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to, I don't know, wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you live in the Portland area, you know that autumn means Portland's Leaf Day is fast approaching. Now, for many neighborhoods, that's the case. But on Tuesday, the city announced a big change and its annual street cleaning. It's going to be free. Now, I've opted out every year because I manage my own leaves. Uh, but for those who have paid every year, it's going to be different this year. This, um, this year, the Portland uh, Bureau of Transportation says it will no longer require fees to clean up the leaves. Since 2010, the city said it would uh, charge residents from 15 to $65 to sweep up the leaves in 52 districts across the city every fall. Well, the, um, it was learned that in 2016 and 2017, more than 17,000 people opted out of the leaf cleaning uh, program each of the past two years. And not one of them received a, a penalty for failing to pick up their own leaves. That means every person who opted out picked up their own leaves and there was no Uh, fee enforcement. Well, the city said the fee was implemented to recover the costs of cleaning streets following the recession in the late 2000s. The fee we started, they say, uh, collecting in 2010 never met its goal of covering the city's costs. In addition, the cost of administering the fee had been uh, quite significant, adding up to almost 20 percent of the program's cost. Well, when a policy is not meeting its intended goal, we shouldn't be afraid to reevaluate it and change course if necessary. Now, that is a direct quote from the Portland Commissioner, Chloe Udaley, in a news release. Now, I would love to hear government officials make those kinds of statements more frequently, uh, but she goes on to say that uh, that's what we've done with the leaf day fee. It's never met its goal as a cost recovery measure. By ending it, we'll save on administrative costs. Our streets and storm drains will be cleared, and Portlanders will have one less fee to pay. So this fall, they say leaf removal will be funded through general transportation dollars, similar to snow and ice removal, pothole repairs, roadside vegetation cleanup. Although pothole repairs, it seems like we're a little behind on that. The first day this year will be November the 9th. So uh, no fee, no opting out this time around. That's a very good thing. Uh, Another thing that uh, was uh, brought to my attention, I thought was rather interesting, if you're familiar with the scriptures and the book of Ezekiel, there's a key figure in the Bible and, and the end days prophecy. He focuses uh, on the Dead Sea flourishing into life. Now, I was there just a few years ago. It hasn't been that long ago. 
And I remember it was Pastor Greg Allen who brought up as we were standing on the shore of the Dead Sea that has receded rather dramatically, which one would assume would make it much saltier than it had been uh, in the uh, in the past. Uh, he made uh, reference to this scripture in Ezekiel, reminding us that at some point the Dead Sea would flourish again. Uh, it's something that's considered to be impossible due to the high salt content. Well, Israeli photojournalist Noam Bedoin has reported sightings of marine life and small sinkholes around the Dead Sea. I thought that was rather interesting, as well as vegetation growing. He released some photos by the Dead Sea Revival Project, and it shows tiny fish swimming in the water. That's reportedly from the highly salinated body of water. Mr. Bedoin, who uh, works with the Dead Sea Revival Project, which works to preserve the sea and other Israeli water treasures, said the fish prove the water is anything but dead. And as I mentioned, it's receded. Uh, That body of water has receded rather dramatically in uh, recent years. I remember the first time I went to Israel and where the water line was, and just in the space of the few years that I've been there, you can see a dramatic shift. Uh, It's also reportedly evidence of a biblical miracle coming true. He uh, points out the Bible states that after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the land was turned into a barren wasteland, the same area of the Dead Sea and where it is now. But it was uh, prophesied that life would once again return to the land with fish in abundance in the water. Coming to the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth, by the way, you see prophecy coming to life. Uh, He uh, says uh, in speaking to breaking news in Israel, a place that was once cursed in biblical times. Now you can come here to the Dead Sea, explore the sinkholes and see fish where the water has receded fulfilling prophecies from Ezekiel, who talked about the land flourishing and blooming when the Jews return. So sort of an inter- I need to f- investigate that further, but it's an interesting reflection on uh, what the scriptures have to say and what some witnesses are saying they're witnessing there now. He continued by saying the curse is over in this place and its minerals are now bringing life to people around the world. Mr. Bedoin and his team has uh, been documenting changes in the Dead Sea for the last two years Due to environmental changes, around 600 Olympic pools worth uh, of water are being lost from the sea every year, something being described as an environmental catastrophe. So it's an interesting combination of two things. One, the receding of the water, uh, the shoreline uh, being quite different than it was uh, decades ago, and the the sighting of of life in that body of water. So anyway, it's worth uh, mentioning and worth investigating further. We're working on some things for tomorrow's program, but on Thursday, we're looking forward to talking with Ray Rhodes Jr. His book is titled Susie. That's not a reference to the receptionist here at KPDQ. When you call, you are um, received by our receptionist, Susie. But this is The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. We're looking forward to exploring her life and the role she played in this extraordinary ministry. I always love the story behind the story because generally always there is one that God is at work using people whose names are lesser known, but who have a significant impact in the lives of those whose names we do know. And my guess is within this listening audience, there are people whose names we probably won't know who are standing behind some of the movements and people who are making a significant contribution to the kingdom and to the body of Christ here. Those lesser known people to us, but fully known uh, to God and well done comes to mind that that is a phrase that uh, those who serve him well, whether or not they're known by their peers uh, will certainly here. So that's what's coming up on um, on Thursday. Looking forward to talking with Ray Rhodes Jr. And then on Friday, assuming there's not some major event, and there certainly could be, we'll uh, lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. But we certainly will break in if there is breaking news to keep you up to date. Well, there continues to be a great deal to pray about over our country. I made a, a comment earlier about a statement made by the former 
presidential candidate Hillary Clinton saying that her opponents, referring to the Republicans, they simply you cannot be civil with them. And until we, referring to the Democrats, uh, take control, civility is is off the table. Um, That's a dangerous place to be. It's one thing when you have uh, millennials or uh, young people, uh, Antifa, making those kinds of statements. But when you have a person of influence uh, suggesting that civility just does not uh, suit the times, uh, that's a dangerous place to be. Um, so we need to play, uh, pray rather for our republic, for those in positions of authority, for those in positions of influence who no longer wield authority, but certainly do have the potential to influence. I remember um, Michelle Obama suggesting that when they go low, we go high. And this is a departure from what she suggested was the right approach. Um, Hillary making those statements just uh, yesterday on a national news program. Again, tomorrow on the program, we've got uh, some things in the works. On Thursday, we'll talk with Ray Rhodes Jr., Susie, the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. We're looking forward to that. want to thank James Blinn for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.